This is C. Travis Webb, editor of The American Age, and this is my note on last week's podcast. Um, Last week's conversation was just uh, Stephen and I, because Seth is at his writing retreat. Um, And uh, obviously, if you listened, you know that uh, we talked about the strangest things that we ever believed, or maybe the strangest things we still believe, and ended up talking about conspiracy theories and um, a few other things uh, that, you know... We're pretty heavy and, and serious and, you know, even even though we were talking about UFOs and whatnot. Um, and, you know, what, what it recalled for me is that, you know, the podcast is really, it's a serious affair. Uh, and we talk about very serious things um, that matter. And I don't, uh, I, I don't lament that. I don't regret that. I'm happy for it. I'm glad that I have an outlet to talk to my friends uh, about things that are consequential. And I'm glad I have space to uh, get upset about things and work through them and, you know, uh, think out loud as we say. But the last week's discussion, you know, did help me remember that, you know, there is another part of me, certainly, I'm sure this is true for Stephen uh, and Seth as well, um, that isn't quite so heavy. And I don't mean just in, you know, uh, that I have a sense of humor or or anything like that, although, of course, I think I do. I'm sure almost everyone thinks they do. Um, but that I am far less certain of the things that I... Well, let me let me let me say that a different way. I'm far less certain about everything than I often um, represent myself to be. In that moment, of course, I'm I believe very seriously, very deeply in the things that that I'm talking about. It's not that I am, you know, putting on airs or you know pretending to believe something or. Uh, playing devil's advocate or something like that. Absolutely not. That's not what I mean. I just mean if, if it wouldn't take much for me to take half a step back and question nearly everything that I feel certain about. Um, because, you know, to, to kind of borrow from Shakespeare, um, there are more things in heaven and earth than we could dream. Um, or, to borrow from Prospero and the Tempest, um, that we are such stuff as dreams are made on. We invent this world, this dizzying, amazing, incredible, heartless, crushing, spiritually exhilarating social universe. We invent it whole cloth, beginning to end. I don't mean that we're not, it's not built on something substantial. Um, of course, the universe is pretty unforgivingly solid <laughs> and unforgivingly rigid about a great many things. But humans are really, their capacity to imagine and invent and create uh in some ways encompasses the whole thing and yet is utterly defeated by it as well. 
And rather than, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll read uh, something from Shakespeare. And I thought, no, it's a little, I mean, not that I don't love Shakespeare. I really do. Um, and uh, lament that I haven't been able to go to the theater as much uh, at this point, mostly because I'm protesting the continued masking at our favorite Shakespeare theater that's near the house. Um, but that's a choice. You know, obviously uh, I could make a different choice. But I thought, no, I'm going to read from Stephen King. Um, and I don't always read it during my note, of course. Uh, but this is from The Gunslinger. And uh, I don't really need to, to gloss the books, but it's one of King's probably more um, – it's probably my favorite uh, series that King has done. Not that he writes a lot of series. He tends to write standalone novels, although you know, kind of loosely interconnected in some ways. Uh, you know, likes to reuse character names and whatnot and villains. But um, the, the gunslinger, you know, sort of a cosmic traveling – uh, interdimensional gunslinger. Um, and in towards the end of the first book, there's this reflection on size. And he says, uh, you see, size defeats us. For the fish, the lake in which he lives is the universe. What does the fish think when he is jerked up by the mouth through the silver limits of existence and into a new Universe where the air drowns him and the light is blue madness. Where huge bipeds with no gills stuff it into a suffocating box and cover it with wet weeds to die. Or one might take the tip of the pencil and magnify it. One reaches the point where a stunning realization strikes home. The pencil tip is not solid. It is composed of atoms which whirl and revolve like a trillion demon planets. What seems solid to us is actually only a loose net held together by gravity. Viewed at their actual size, the distances between these atoms might become leagues, gulfs, aeons. The atoms themselves are composed of nuclei and revolving protons and electrons. One may step down further to subatomic particles, and then to what? Tachyons? Nothing? Of course not. Everything in the universe denies nothing. To suggest an ending is the one absurdity. If you fell outward to the limit of the universe, would you find a board fence and signs reading dead end? No. You might find something hard and rounded, as the chick must see the egg from the inside. And if you should peck through the shell or find a door, what great and torrential light might shine through your opening at the end of space? Might you look through and discover our entire universe is but part of one atom on a blade of grass? Might you be forced to think that by burning a twig you incinerate an eternity of eternities? That existence rises not to one infinite, but to an infinity of them. He's right. Size defeats us. Um, I mean, the size of the earth and its inhabitants defeats us. You know, we profess things with great certainty um, when we discuss things on the podcast. I certainly do. Um, and I, I strive with great conviction to convince uh, Seth and Stephen or whoever will or whomever listens when I'm talking in, in other venues of my position but size utterly defeats us. And yet it is our imaginations that can encompass this size. It's a 
it's a paradox. Um, you know, do we exist inside the universe or does the universe exist inside of us? And the answer is yes to both. Um, and I reject the reductionism, the cynical reductionism that places all of human aspiration as just kind of vainglorious rejections of our mortality. And I reject, I reject the absurd positivity that insists that what we think will come to pass because we think it, like the gospel of wealth and, and things like that. But I fully embrace the paradox of that. I fully embrace the mystery of those things. I fully embrace that I am defeated by the size of the world, that I am dwarfed by the people in it, and the myriad things that they believe, and the myriad things that they do that I will never know. And I also embrace my ability to sympathetically engage and imagine and cohabitate and love all of those people, even though, of course, that's impossible. Um, that's it for my note this week. Um, thanks very much for listening. Uh, Stephen and I will uh, be on the podcast, the two of us again, and then uh, Seth should rejoin us after that. So um, you're appreciated. Thank you. Hi, this is Stephen G. Fullwood, and this is my American Age Coda for Strange Beliefs. I really enjoyed listening to last week's podcast because I'm always interested in, in ideas and how they manifest themselves in the minds of people who I really enjoy talking to, like Travis. So, And also love hearing the sound of my own voice and auditioning ideas in front of people to see what they might think about those things. And so that was fun. And as a code, I was thinking that instead of sort of riffing off of what we talked about last week, I would introduce an idea that is exciting to me right now. It's, well, it's more of a preoccupation and, and it's embodied in a person because I guess right now my sensibilities are in the 20th century. And this idea is embodied in a writer by the name of H.P. Lovecraft, who's considered the father of cosmic horror. I became interested in Lovecraft because of his connection to horror, which is interesting to me as modernism was taking shape as this man was coming into himself as a person. Lovecraft lost both of his parents, one to insanity and the other one to, uh, I think, a botched operation. Uh, he was... Um, by all accounts, in terms of his what his mother told called him a, a hideous looking man, um, and so he of course he grew up feeling a little bit um, you know uh, self conscious about his looks and whatnot, and he clung to a particular kind of idea about a, being a man of letters. He wrote like thousands of letters, which are now housed at Brown University, where I was this weekend. I was at Brown University opening, um, helping to open an exhibition called Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. And it actually opened at an exhibition space not very far from where H.P. Uh, Lovecraft lived. There's a plaque near the library there. Um, and I bought a book where he was um, of his correspondence of there's several different collections. Um, and what I find interesting about him is that he seemed to embody something that I, I'm very charmed by. Um, I'm charmed by 
the singular writer or the singular, in some cases, a singular white male writer. What is he writing about? How is he thinking about the world and whatnot? And as a person, he was described as a xenophobe, um, as a racist. And oftentimes what comes behind that is, that, but he was a man of his time and men were like that. You know, I'm like, well, not everybody was racist or xenophobic. But um, but I won't go off into that tangent. But what we'll come back to is that I'm engaged in this idea of his letters. Now, of course, he's known for the uh, Cthulhu mythos. Um, of which a lot of other writers have come and sort of like built this world around this idea. But what I find most interesting about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft are his letters. His letters are fantastic. And this is a time when, you know, people were writing really expressive, long, developed letters uh, telling you where they went and how they felt about this. And then they, sometimes they comment on the very last letter that they received from their correspondent. Uh, and what I like about his, um, his letters, like I said, many things, whatever it's the insights, but it's also, um, in some cases a way to kind of understand what he thought he should be and what he was trying to be. This man, uh, as I mentioned, was born in Rhode Island in 1893 and he died at the age of 46 and this man wrote a lot of stories for pulp magazines. Um, and honestly, I think even though he may have thought this, and but he seemed to live the life he chose to live. He was dealt some very d difficult cards. He was born into wealth that was soon lost. And I'm always interested in the very thing I'm interested in people who have some kind of means in the world and then lose it and then kind of figure out, watch them see how they navigate the world without the resources that they were born into. Um, and I think that when I think of the cosmic horror that he's known or that he's responsible for, according to you know critics over the years or whatnot, in terms of giving that birth, it's that unknown thing that strikes me as being... Uh, really interesting as a possible character, as a quality that I think needs to be examined more closely. And I'm sure academics have done this, so I'm, I'm just very new to this or what have you. When I, uh, I'll read anyone's letters, let me say that, uh, particularly those of the 20, earlier 20th century, because um, as America started to think through or was trying to work through in some of its cases, what an American the the idea of an American has always been in flux to me as an idea, whether or not um, it's the uh, the late eighteenth century uh, until now. There's just so many ways that one wants to um, I think imagine what an American is versus what it actually is. You know, in terms of like on the day to day basis, um, and so someone like H.P. Lovecraft. His letters offer me some insight into the life he felt he should be living based on um, based on who how who he was as a white man born in Providence, Rhode Island, born into wealth. And then I think spent majority of his life sort of um, wrestling with the lack of money, you know, and, and the struggle 
and the illness. He was a, a sickly child who was ill throughout his life. Um, yeah. So that's <laughs> a roundabout way of saying that the, these ideas of when the stranger is within you, you know, because of something you've been dispossessed of something. How do you deal with it? Um, it's not an idea like the UFOs or like uh, behold a pale horse, but it is a way for me to it's it's one of those ideas that I don't see myself letting go anytime soon because I, I'm curious about, again, how people become or value themselves outside of what it is they own or their race or their gender or what have you. How do you become a thing you like and enjoy? And I think that might be it. Thanks.